production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here, also a proud member. And we're in person here at the City Club today for our forum, From Policy to Progress, Partnering to Create Equitable Community Development. Sort of a mouthful, but we'll get into it in a second. Our forum today is the final forum in our series marking the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy's 75th anniversary, which is co-presented with the Lincoln Institute and the law firm Mansur Gavin. Over the last nine months, we've been convening forums exploring the specific challenges facing legacy cities, the power of philanthropy to spur investment in those cities, and the importance of creating equity and waterfront access. The Lincoln Institute is engaging in these discussions in Cleveland, both because of its roots here in Cleveland and also as part of its Legacy Cities initiative. This initiative supports a national network of community and government leaders working to create shared prosperity in cities, transitioning from former industrial economies. And for our forum today, we're talking about the power of policy and collaboration, I want to underscore that word, collaboration, to solve some of the biggest challenges our communities face. If the last 18 months have reminded us of anything, it is the power and importance of a robust response to a crisis. The influx of federal funds to state and local governments amid the coronavirus pandemic has helped thousands of families to keep food on the table and make ends meet. But funding is just one way that government policymakers, philanthropists, and other organizations can influence how communities evolve. So how can thoughtful policy implemented well, I'm going to underscore that too, thoughtful policy implemented well, how can that help our regions and communities and be the determining factor in successful, equitable community development? With us today are Dr. Rafael Bostic. He's president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. He's been at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta since 2017, and he's instructed me not to call him president or doctor for the rest of this program, so I just want to clear that up. Also with us is Dr. George Mack McCarthy, who has instructed me to call him Mack as well. Um, he's president and CEO of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy for the last seven years. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Please join me in welcoming them. So um, in the news yesterday and, and this morning was um, an announcement from Cleveland City Hall from Mayor Frank Jackson about uh, the plan to deploy roughly a quarter of a million dollars in the first round of money from the American Rescue Plan Act, the big chunk of funds, a total of five, more than 500 million is coming to the city of Cleveland, another quarter of a million coming to Cuyahoga County. And um, some of the ways in which there's a, there's a lot of, as you would imagine, if you had $255 million to, to deploy, you'd create a long list of things. But the, some of the stuff that's most kind of germane to what we're discussing here has to do with community development and funds for housing, funds to support, um, to support community development corporations and their work in, um, in helping, helping homeowners and businesses thrive. Uh, but I want to hear from both of you, if you were in charge of the spending of $255 million and keeping in mind that the mayor has just a few more months until the end of the year in his term, like what would you be doing? What would you focus on? What would be top of your list? Rafael Bostic. So I think for me, well, first of all, uh, 
Good afternoon, everyone. It's really good to be here in Ohio and Welcome. in the Cleveland area. It's, it's been a long time since I've been here, and it's, it's, it's a city I always enjoy being in. Uh, in thinking about this, um, I really think about the context. And the context is you know, a, a pandemic which put extra stress on all the ways that we had precariousness. And so for me, as I think about sort of the things that I would want to see uh, bolstered, it would be the, the areas where we know that there are stresses and weakness. So affordable housing, clearly, because we know there's a lot of housing insecurity and that we are still at risk of this with, uh, with eviction moratoria rolling off and, and jobs not having come back as much. Um, I think also a lot about food security and making sure that our food infrastructure is robust and able to, to meet uh, people where they are and address um, that, that kind of concern. Uh, and then I also think a lot, particularly in this context, about health. Uh, we know that health is one of the areas where um, uh, it's a major barrier to people being able to, to get jobs and keep jobs. And so uh, if we don't have a healthy community, and, if we, and we know, I don't, I don't know if Cleveland's done a, an, a health atlas, but uh, in my district, a number of cities have, and there are some real specific places where we know that the, the, the poor health outcomes co-locate. And so you can have very concentrated investments that can uh, try to move the dial there, and that can reduce another, or relieve another area of precariousness. So those are three off the top of my head. Uh, three areas that, that, that come to mind. So for me, I, I think the, first of all, uh, let me join Raphael in thanking you all for having us here. And it's been a great pleasure to work together with the City Club for our 75th anniversary at the Lincoln Institute. Um, you know, for me, I think that, I, I, just as a principle, I think that we have to be um, ready to tap the brakes on the money and how we use it because there's this sense of urgency that people have that we need to spend it right away. And I think we very often make some bad choices when we try to spend money right away. Uh, this idea of looking for shovel-ready projects. Shovel-ready projects are already on the shelf, and they've not been invested in because maybe they're not the right projects. And I think we have to really think about kind of this existential moment. And it's not just a COVID crisis, but we're, we're really facing a climate crisis that's going to re require a, a different kind of institutional organization uh, kind of regionally to kind of deal with it. And so for me, I would think about the $250 million, the $500 million as a down payment on an investment in new institutional arrangements that can help us to do the big things we're going to need to do to create kind of the, well, I guess what you call the, the regional positive sum game. And so what does that mean? Well, it means we stop with this beggar thy neighbor kind of um, approach to um, urban sprawl, stealing businesses, stealing um, middle class households and driving them out to the, to the fringe. And we find ways to reinvest in kind of the, the core city, reinvest in the, the neighborhoods that, um, that have been you know, struggling for the last 20, 30 years. And we find ways to turn them into uh, kind of the thriving mixed-income neighborhoods that kind of defined this region uh, back in the Industrial Revolution. Because I think there, there is going to be a new kind of Industrial Revolution, and I think the, the American Midwest is going to be the recipients of lots of, of climate migrants and lots of new ideas, and I think that uh, the pandemic has opened up uh, an entirely new way of thinking about the relationship between where we live and where we work. 
And if we find ways to kind of make the right investments to, to make that happen and have an eye towards maybe a little bit longer future than just the next four or five years, uh, we're going to uh, we'll be better at making that happen. Having an eye towards a future of more beyond the next election cycle is not something uh, American governments writ large, whether that's at the municipal level, the state level, or the federal level, are particularly good at, Mac. Um, how would you, how, how do you frame that in a way that is in the best, in, in, in everybody's best interest and in the self-interest of elected politicians? Well, there's a renewed interest at the national level in what we call kind of cross-agency collaboration, where we're going to find ways to get uh, transportation agencies, housing agencies, the education departments, actually thinking more carefully about working together at the national policy level to, to make things work better locally. And the problem with reorganizing at the national level is that we don't have concurrence with the local and regional level. We don't, ha we don't have counterparties that can work across kind of the thematic areas, housing, transportation, education, and work at um, some level of geography higher than a jurisdiction. So I think we have to begin to kind of elevate the role of like the Metropolitan Planning Organization as more than just the recipient of transportation money and figuring out where you're going to put highway interchanges and think more about how that becomes a coordinating agency across housing, um, transportation, education, and how it becomes kind of both the, um, uh, the, uh, the guiding agency, but also the accountable agency for how that money gets spent and, and used and planned. And so I know I, I, I was reading a lot of the stuff you sent in advance of this, and there's just all this debate about where you put highway interchanges. It's a tremendous amount right? of debate in but, greater Cleveland. But highway interchanges are not what you need in a, in a, in a, in a carbon neutral future, right? We need better public transportation. We need to have people living closer to where they work. We need a bunch of other things that will make, make the, the, the region work better. And um, we need to think about that kind of in the, in the longer term. But we need an entity that's in a position to kind of um, cohere all the different tiny jurisdictions that are going to be too busy trying to you know, make, them, you know, make themselves better off in isolation. And, uh, and we'll work together. Right? George Mac McCarthy is president and CEO of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Rafael Bostic, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so I was going to just jump in on this. Um, you know, Mac, you're always so thoughtful on these things and raise these <laughs> issues. And I have like 800 things I want to say in response. Um, so, so one, uh, I would say, sure, if we can get a regional governance structure that is enduring and that is respected by all the jurisdictions, um, then that can work. Um, that's hard. And you know, I've actually done some research to show that just the rules of how you um, decide who, who is the representative in each wave of funding is, is, is uh, determined, determines where money goes across the region. So it's not as if there's a stand back, kind of fully objective uh, approach to this and that, that personalities and, and, and individuals matter. Um, I think. If you can get that body to be more muscular, though, it does lead to different kinds of conversations, and it makes and it helps the region sort of face trade-offs uh, or potential trade-offs more directly and more explicitly. I think that's a good thing. Uh, the thing I've, I've I've been thinking a lot about this uh, because when I think about economic development efforts, particularly in communities that have often not been invested in, uh, what I've seen is one mayor administration picks four neighborhoods to invest in. They start it, 
But these investments are going to be 10-year projects, 15-year projects. They're not going to be a four-year project. A, a mayor's term is, what, eight years in most places tops? So then that mayor terms out, the next person comes in, picks four other neighborhoods, starts to the, all over again. And so you wind up with these cycles that, that don't actually work. You don't, you don't see anything really emerge from that. So I think one of the things that needs to be considered is how do you get uh, partners, like real partners, who aren't on a four-year election, election cycle to be in the conversation more robustly? How do you get the foundations to be in? I actually think, you know, I, I live in Atlanta, and um, in Atlanta, the private sector plays a very significant role in a lot of, in guiding a lot of the civic conversations. Their arcs are not in these election cycles, and so they can be that, that continuous memory. The, you know, we had that conversation six years ago, and we're not going to do that again, right? When you say the private sector, are you talking about the for-profit private sector or the not-for-profit private sector? Uh, or both? Private, however you want to take it. So, uh -huh. so you know, I, I think the for-profits, they, they actually have an interest in the region functioning. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that I've seen in Atlanta is um, businesses care about what's happening on the street because that's their um, uh, workforce attraction. Uh, that's one of the messages they're going to say. You can, if you come here, it's a place that works. There are interesting things. You can get to places. So, so they actually have an interest that goes beyond just, you know, I need to make a profit today. Uh, and if you can galvanize that and, and really get a shared sense of purpose and vision, I think there's an opportunity for, for them to play a role as well. And so you wind up being able to draw capital from multiple sources in different sort of um, arcs of time, uh, but everyone stays focused in a really would you say that that's really like that's the secret sauce to Atlanta's growth over the last two three decades, or you know? So so I, I so that's uh, you know books have been written on this. Um, <laughs> I, Summarize I, them, please. You know, yeah. uh, so I would say two things on that. One, public leadership matters. The leaders in Atlanta decided that they were going to compete for an airport in the 50s and 60s, and that airport has made a big difference. So so decisions by public sector leaders to invest in infrastructure is hugely important. Uh, the second thing I would say is um, I think Atlanta has succeeded in part because it has um, projected togetherness. That people, when they invest in Atlanta, you know, Atlanta's, um, but their, their tagline, which I'm not crazy about, I'm just going to say that, <laughs> is a city that's too busy to hate. Like, we got things to do. We're not going to bicker with each other. We're not going to be dysfunctional in that way. I like that. And I'm not going to lie, I like that. <laughs> well, you, you should call some people in Atlanta before you start using that. Okay. I was going to say that. I'm not, I, I, uh, I just like. But it, but it, but it but it is it sends a message. So through the through the civil rights era, when other cities were having demonstrations and riots, Atlanta didn't have that. The the African American leaders and the the, the white leaders of the time, they got they sat down and said, we're not going to do that. We're going to find some other way to get to a solution. And it, I think it really affected the perception of the, of the region in, in ways that, that caused people to be willing to invest there. Uh, and then once that happens, you start to get sort of uh, the, the cascading event effect where you know, a couple of businesses go there, big businesses plant a flag, uh, then universities start to reorient towards serving the needs for those businesses, uh, and then you know, capital starts flowing in. Uh, so so, so there, there's something there. Um, but it takes, it, 
it takes everyone coming together and really having a conversation and being public on it. But Dan, the, the, the other side of the private sector is the civic sector, mm -hmm. and there's a huge role of the civic sector, philanthropy, uh, the nonprofit sector, CDCs, all the folks that kind of organize themselves around making a difference locally, they also become institutional memory for the, the place. And they can hold others accountable, but they can also do other things. They can convene. They can really, like the city club itself is, is a, a, a player in the civic sector that can raise issues that might not be raised in other fora that, that can now be discussed uh, differently. And so, you know, uh, but rolling back a little bit, the other thing that, that we need to keep in mind is that we don't really have empowered institutions yet that can work regionally. But how do you get there? You get there through the ballot box. You elect mayors and public officials that have an eye towards a, a, a functional region, not just taking care of the, their own single jurisdiction. And the, the best example I can think of recently was when John Hickenlooper was the mayor of Denver, and he convened the mayor's caucus of all the jurisdictions around Denver um, to uh, really think about what they were gonna do to make sure that Denver was what they considered to be a global city. And as Raphael pointed out, in Atlanta they built the airport. In Denver they plunked down $6 billion to create a regional uh, light rail transit system that was going to be the anchor of a whole different kind of regional plan that was gonna really transform Denver from 100 individual jurisdictions battling each other for jobs and tax base to a functional region. And I think that the transformation has been dramatic. If you look at Denver now compared to Denver in the past, and it, what really strikes me about that is that it's in the Mountain West where people are individualists, right? And they found a way to do it. And it was one mayor, one vote. It wasn't Denver, the big bully in the room, telling other people what to do. But they were able to actually then advocate on behalf of the region, all the different mayors coming up with a set of things they needed to do. They, they created an art fund where they actually added a tiny share to the, to the, to the um, uh, sales tax that they could invest in artists and public art that they could put all around the region. The mayors did that, and they all agreed to add whatever, whatever it was. It was 25 basis points or something to the, to the, to the um, sales tax. But it, it created millions of, of dollars, but it created pride through all of, uh, of Denver where new art and new artists were really starting to change to kind of whatever it is, the feel of the place. Um. That is such a beautiful vision you've painted. Um, for, you know, the, our region here, and I'm curious to know exactly like what the actual numbers are. I mean, here in Cuyahoga County, we have 59 municipalities. The surrounding counties are, don't have quite as many municipalities, but there have been efforts around regional collaboration for the last two decades, at least, going back further, and as well. But I mean, but the recent ones, and they've. They, is, there has been, you know, the furthest anybody has gotten is like a shared dispatch service or something like that. And I mean, and, and it's, it, it, I'm sure there's more collaboration that has gone beyond that, and I don't mean to, to minimize that. But, but you're talking, I mean, the, the note about public leadership and how much that matters is, I think it resonates here. And I don't think it's actually been an issue that has been raised in the current mayor's race right now. And I, I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing uh, people agreeing with that. And it seems like it should be, and you seem surprised. Well, um, I don't know if I'm surprised. I, I guess I would, what I would say is um, 
Well, first of all, I haven't been following the race, you so, should, yeah. so <laughs> that's so why. Who would you like to endorse? That's why I can't be surprised because I actually don't know anything. So, so, um, but but I do think you know, this is hard, right? And 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 um, you know, I say when I was a professor, I used to say, you know, all the easy problems have been solved. Like if it was easy, we figured it out, we got it done. All the things we're going to be talking about from here on out are just going to be hard things, and it's going to take people um, and and communities to be willing to take 80% and not 100%. And all of them have to be willing to do that because on some level, uh, regionalism is a, a collective is about some degree of compromise that, uh, that I get a little less, but we get a lot more. And if you can get to that kind of mindset, that's, that's important. And I will say, you know, I just talked about Atlanta, all the things, Atlanta's not good on this. Right? Mm -hmm. we, are, we are having an election um, well, there's a, a threat of an election that where part of the city wants to break off and be its own jurisdiction. Um, and so, so, the, so there are these tensions that flare up all the time. And um, it, it, it is uh, one person at a time. I, I liked how Max said it, like one person, one vote, they all come together. The other thing I would say is, and this is one, and I'm not sure how you do this, but Small victories, like baby steps before you, 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 you try to run a marathon. Mm -hmm. Like pick a couple things that are, that maybe you think you can build consensus on mm -hmm. and let's all show that we can get, we can do it. And then that becomes the building block to try something a little harder. And then you can sort of, because you know, a lot of this I, I feel like, I know for me, like even just, just exercise, Tony was talking about exercise early, like the first time you do an exercise, like running up that hill is a killer. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you run a quarter of the hill and then walk, and then, then, and then you run a half a hill and then, then, then walk the rest. And if you can sort of build up to it, I think there is um, some potential there. But it takes someone to pick up those first things and then to try to make it happen. Mm -hmm. The Denver vision is a, a really interesting one and, and instructive, Mac. Um, I wanna ask you about your experience assisting the city of Detroit because we talked about the, the challenge of getting, of getting funds out the door uh, if you, you know, with the, this, this current influx of, this sort of generational influx of funds from the federal government through ARPA. Um, what, and you worked with Detroit through your capacity connected with the, the Ford Foundation. I wonder if you could share a little of that story. Yeah, so um, one of the things that, that everybody, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it kind of lives behind the veils, but money that flows from the federal government it comes with lots of strings attached, but the biggest string is compliance. And um, any money you get, you have to, you know, you have to be able to show that you use the money the right way. You have to know the right forms to fill out. You have to report on the right deadlines. All those kinds of things. And so, um, when I first came to Detroit, uh, well before the the bankruptcy, one of the most vexing things I encountered uh, was when uh, one of the mayors of Detroit would come to me at the Ford Foundation and ask me to give him a grant to open the city parks for kids because the city didn't have the money. And so then we would look at kind of the city finances and we saw that the city was actually leaving on an annual basis $100 million of federal and state formula money on the table. And so um, we just, uh, so I would tell the mayor, I said, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, why should I give you a couple million dollar grant when you have all this money that's available and, and you're not using it? And he said, well, we'll have to look at that. So, um, so <laughs> like yes, 
right? And so, so, uh, so when, when Detroit was going into bankruptcy and, and Kevin Orr was set up as the emergency financial manager, and full disclosure, Kevin Orr is also a member of the board of the Lincoln Institute. Um, no. Now, yes, he wasn't then, and I wasn't on the, I wasn't, the, so Kevin and I sat down, he would been, he had come there, he had been there just a few weeks, and he just asked me, he goes, he goes, what would you do? And I said, I'd find a way to get the city to use its money. And he goes, well, what do you mean? And then I explained to him that, you know, it's been driving me crazy, $100 million a year. That, the city had a billion-dollar annual budget, and they were leaving $100 million on the table. And so um, we agreed uh, that the Kresge Foundation, the Ford Foundation, would invest in um, a, a consulting team would come in and kind of figure it out, why this was happening. And what we found out was that the city, and this doesn't, this, this isn't all that surprising, had um, really broken down responsibility for the money it received from the state and federal government to the individual departments in the city that were using it. So like the community development block grant money was going to the planning department where they would dole it out, or the education money would go to the, the school department. Um, and as the city shrunk and as its budget shrunk and as, as people left, they lost a lot of talent in the private sector, the public sector. And so um, what was happening was that people who knew how to comply and knew how to use those, those federal monies um, left, and then the people who were left um, weren't actually doing a very good job of compliance. And so what was happening was, not only were they not using the money, the inspector generals from HUD or from education were coming in and finding that they hadn't complied and clawing the money back. And every year they were getting like $20 million clawed back, which was being pulled straight out of their general funds to pay back the federal government for money they'd already spent in the wrong way. So people got so scared that they just stopped asking for the money. So uh, uh, the recommendation we got from the consulting group was, look, why isn't Detroit like any average-sized research university having um, a grants office that knows how to do compliance and knows how to manage the money and knows how to do the reporting? And so uh, Ford and Kresge agreed that we would put the money on the table to fund a centralized grants management system for the city um, and staff it for the first three years. And um, they hired a new CFO, they brought in a new team, we got them a, an IT system. And within three years, they were using all their money. And, they, and the, the third year, and that was the year that I left Ford, I was talking to the CFO and he goes, and right now we're, we might get $20,000 clawed back, but we think we're gonna find the receipts and we're, it's, all, it's all gonna be good. So they were going to use all their money. They went from twenty million clawbacks to twenty thousand. So hundred million left on the table, twenty million clawbacks to the hundred million being spent and no clawbacks, right? Wow. And uh, and the thing is that uh, that uh, is actually anomalous in the U.S. because most cities do not manage uh, grants uh, centrally. They still uh, it, it's it's really disparate. And, and we actually started a, a research uh, effort at Lincoln Institute looking at that and. It was my uh, theory that it was, it was distressed places like Detroit that couldn't use their money. Turns out, that's not true. Lots and lots of places cannot use their money. And what's even more interesting, Did you nobody, learn anything about Cleveland? Uh, I, I didn't look at, at Cleveland specifically, but okay. I, my guess is Cleveland is probably, probably in the middle of the pack there. Um, but uh, we then started talking to the states who are kind of the interlocutors between the, the federal government and the uh, local governments. And the states are complaining all the time about local capacity to manage grants and all that and how much money gets left on the table. But Illinois created an enterprise level system at the state 
to uh, aid people in doing compliance with all 1,700 grant programs at the federal government. And they estimated that they saved a million human hours a year in compliance costs by doing it at the state level and then offering it up to the jurisdictions at, at the state. So this is a solvable problem, right? It's the most exciting story I've ever heard that involves the word, <laughs> that centers on the word compliance. Uh, you, yeah, <laughs> compliance. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it was, it, it's really interesting because um, during ARA, the, the American Recovery Act and under uh, Obama, um, they actually set up the, these kinds of compliance and reporting structures at state levels around the country because they actually required people who were receiving ARA funds to report on a quarterly basis on how the money was used, the number of jobs, all that kind of stuff. And um, those, they got dismantled, those systems. And in fact, the, the Illinois system that was created that saves that million human hours a, a year was based on a system that was built in Massachusetts during ARA that a lot of states looked at and decided they were gonna um, replicate. When they changed governors in Massachusetts, they shut down that system. <laughs> so they, and, they, and if you look at the, at the, at the state website, you can find almost no, no kind of notice on the system that existed. And it was an enterprise level system that people, that other people from other states would come and study and ask, how can we do it, right? So. You know, I, I wanna, um, we're about to go to the Q&A with the audience and I just wanna take a step back and summarize what we've been discussing because it's kind of gone all over the, uh, in a lot of different directions, but I feel like there's a, there's a thing here. I mean, we, we started out talking about kind of how to spend this unprecedented amount of money coming in to the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County and the region. And, um, and we talked about the importance of investing in health and food and housing, um, but also like the possibility and the, the possibility of regional collaboration around these things that hinges on public leadership. And, um, and then ultimately, but what it, a lot of it comes down to is that the people involved are actually doing the most efficient thing possible um, rather than protecting turf. I don't know if that's a, a so, decent summary of what we've yeah, discussed, go ahead, but go ahead, Rafael Bostic. I, I was gonna say a little different than that, okay. which is um, this is a both and situation. Yeah. You need vision and you need basic blocking and tackling because there are lots of times we have the vision, people have these, these big picture ideas, but then they don't have anyone who actually gets down and goes through the muck to get the stuff done. And what Max's story just says is, just getting the stuff done, even with no real vision, like he wasn't talking about vision at all, was gonna make a big difference for, that, for Detroit, for that city. Um, if you can get the total package, if you can get the vision with the getting things done, then, then places can move. And that's kinda gotta be the goal. That's, that's what I heard. Today. I hear that too. Yes, you're, you're a better summarizer than I was, which is why you're president of the Atlanta Fed. Yeah, I don't know about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Dan, I think it, it's, it's two things, right? One is the, 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 the structures, right? The institutional structures, the organization, how you actually kind of prepare yourself to be able to, to execute. But then it's also capacity, and it's the, the capacity of the individuals in the roles they're in. And one of the things we've done at the Lincoln Institute is commit ourselves now to building the capacity of local public sector officials to, to, do, uh, to be able to do all the things they need to do. Because frankly, most of them are so stressed out, they're, they're putting out fires. And when, you, when you're in that tactical mode of putting out fires, you don't have the luxury of being able to step back and think strategically. And so for us to be able to begin to build those capacities and help to kind of reduce the noise and, and give people new tools to be able to do their jobs better, is key to having kind of 
the right kind of counterparty at the local level to actually do the, the, the blocking and tackling that has to be done. And I know you want to go to Q&A, but, <laughs> but I'll just give a plug for capacity at the community level as well, because a, a lot of times if things are going to happen in communities that are maximally effective for those communities, the communities need to have people who are uh, familiar with the process, understand the language of grants and approvals and legislation, and can really represent the community fully. So, and that's an area where in many, many communities that are, have the most need, they have the least capacity. They're, they're least prepared to have those conversations. And it's hard, then it becomes hard to know what's going to be the most impactful. So I think this capacity issue comes, comes up again and again, super important. Rafael Bostic is president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. He's also a board member at the Lincoln Land Institute, which makes him Mac McCarthy's boss. Mac McCarthy is president and CEO of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. And we're talking today uh, about the power of policy and collaboration to solve some of the biggest challenges our communities face. If you would like to join with Q&A, we've got a microphone set up right here. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members and guests. And uh, we don't have any students in the room today. Um, oh, we do? Students? Oh, there we are. Hey, hey oh, you get the first question. Um, and, uh, and if you're listening to our live stream or our live broadcast on 90.3 IdeaStream Public Media, you can get your question in by, um, by tweeting it at the City Club or texting it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And uh, may we have our first question, please? Yes, so our first question is a text question. What mechanisms can be created to make housing affordable for working families? All development on the near west side has pr priced working families out of the rental slash purchase market. All right, so the near west side, you're not from Cleveland, but it's uh, close to, Cle close to the, the river, close to downtown, and um, probably the, the location where we've had the most, uh, the most housing development in the city. Well, I'll, I'll start. I mean, one of the things that I know is, is, is happening in Cleveland and, and lots of other places is the development of uh, community land trusts as a scaled uh, kind of affordable housing solution. And if you don't know what a community land trust is, it's um, where you separate the ownership of the land from the ownership of the, the homes themselves. And the land is, um, is owned in trust by typically uh, the, the nonprofit organization. And then they sell um, the homes and they're owned free and clear by the actual residents, but they're maintained as affordable because most of the appreciation of housing is actually in the land and not in the structure itself. And so um, we can then uh, create neighborhoods that are stable long-term and maintain affordability because we've kind of separated the, the land from the, um, from the structures. And the, the way you do that and the way you get started, and you already have the ability to do that in Cleveland, is by um, acquiring and then providing the land through a land bank. Mm -hmm. And you have one of the oldest and best land banks in the country in Cuyahoga County um, that is able to then provide that land and uh, at deep discounts or sometimes uh, for free to the right counterparties to then build and sell these community land trusts um, homes. And I think so, we have some community land trusts that have begun yeah. operation in recent years yeah, yeah, in greater Cleveland, but we don't have one on the near west side. We do? We, we do have one on the near west side. Thank you. Thank God Tanya Maness is here. <laughs> Not at me. Tell right. me what's going on. Our next question. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you about tax-based sharing. 
seems it's one of the easiest ways to get uh, collaboration going quickly. We in Cuyahoga County, like a lot of your metro counties, have obviously a lot of disparity between impacted cities and growth communities. Um, I'm gonna nod to our former mayor, Jane Campbell, who I thought successfully executed one back when, when the first ring suburb of Shaker Heights and Cleveland were asked to pitch Office Max for a site that was thinking about Cleveland or Chicago. And two mayors, the other mayor being Judy Rawson, got together and said, let's not have this race to the bottom. Um, so that was a success, not because we captured that company. They did go to Chicago, but the next company that came in, University Hospitals, actually executed on tax sharing. Question to you, especially with um, these growth community mayors, back to your, uh, could we ask for 80% or, you know, maybe I don't get 100%, but we get more. What's the best strategy to try to go after tax-based sharing, and what's the environment where you see it best working? So, um, so that's a very hard question. I, I guess what I would say is, when I talk to business leaders, they can choose anywhere to locate. And the, what they've told me more often than just about anything else is that they're, they're going to avoid places where they're gonna get yelled at if they put the building 20 feet in one direction or another. Like that's, that is more headache and stress than most of them wanna, wanna put up with. And so um, I've, I'm, I'm familiar with a number of sort of multi-county, I've seen this more at the county level than at local jurisdiction levels, but multi-county consortia that have come together and said, we're gonna be a collective business attraction biz entity, and if it locates anywhere in the county, we all share in that. And that has been most effective in, um, from what I've seen, um, uh, sort of the outer ring counties in metro areas that um, are really trying to find their way and manage their growth uh, and not, so when you're on that fringe, you're, you're on, the cusp, uh, you're on that, that boundary of going fully rural and becoming, going in a shrinking dynamic or being embraced into the metro area, um, but that can happen in ways that leave your control. Um, and so this is a way to sort of manage it, have a much more smooth transition that, that can work. And it was really the leaders coming together and seeing the forces that, um, that, that were uh, upon the, ge the geography to say, um, you know, this is one of the things I, I try to say all the time. Econ economies and markets, they don't recognize jurisdictional boundaries. Right? They don't know where a city line ends or where a county line ends. Like the, Watersheds are the same. The, the same thing. And so forces are gonna just wanna go where they wanna go. And so either you can try, you know, and I was in LA, we, I used the, you know, you can ride the wave. Or you can try to fight against it and try to like, act as if these forces are gonna know that this street is where the, force, the, the, the action has to end. And those always end harder. So, so for me, I, I think, and this is one of the reasons I, I like coming to Cleveland, because when I, when I come here, yeah, I, I, I seem to meet people who are very clear-eyed clear -eyed about what's happening with the economy, sort of where the city has been, and have aspirations about where the city wants to go. And that's not, a, that's not something I see in every city. I go to a lot of cities now. Um, but, but Cleveland has always been super refreshing, and that's, that's been true for a long time. And so it's one of the reasons I was really excited that you invited me to come, because um, it's a thoughtful group and we have good conversations. Next one. So I'll just add one, one yeah, quick thing. So um, the best example of tax-based sharing is Minneapolis-St. Paul, where they've been doing it for decades. 
Um, and um, you know, it takes a, a certain kind of leadership, it takes a certain kind of commitment to equity that, um, that got people to voluntarily do it because they did it at the polls. It was a referendum issue. They got people to voluntarily choose to share their tax bases across jurisdictional boundaries. That's a huge thing. But um, you know, in recent years when I've been in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I talk to folks there and they, I, I ask them you know, about this tax base share and they go, we're so lucky we got it done 25 years ago because if we tried to do it today, it would go down in flames. So the, you know, it, it, maybe it's a moment, but you know, and maybe we have a new moment that we can find ways to kind of articulate a, a, whatever it is, a positive sum game that people will see why everybody benefits from sharing a tax base, but it's a big, big lift, right? Go ahead. Hi. Uh, so on the private side of things, what do you think the role is for an organization like the Greater Cleveland Partnership, who may say that they're already doing this sort of regional convening? Greater Cleveland Partnership is our Chamber of Commerce, our regional Chamber of Commerce. There's also a Greater Akron Partnership, or Greater Akron Chamber, mm -hmm. right? So. so I, I guess the, it would have to start with being able to articulate a vision, right? And then it will be being able to do, I guess what Raphael was saying, pick small targets and exhibit success and build on success. So I would say that you, you just pick, because uh, there are things that are going on at a regional level. I remember Jane, by the way, another board member of the Lincoln Institute is sitting right here, Mayor Jane, Jane Campbell, Campbell, right? All my, all my employers are here, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, but, but the, the, the whole restoration of the waterfront went well beyond the boundaries of Cleveland, right? And, um, and that required some level of cooperation and some level of generosity uh, across boundaries. And so being able to um, do those things and then tell the story and build on that success is, I think, the best thing you can do. Um, the other thing is, I don't know, if, if, if you really have um, kind of the ear of, uh, of, of businesses, um, get businesses to stop trying to kind of um, pit um, you know, jurisdictions against each other uh, as ways to kind of sweeten the pot for moving. I know that Sherwin-Williams is going to move their, one of their main offices, and um, somebody's going to lose a lot of jobs, somebody's going to gain a lot of jobs. No, they're staying in Cleveland. Oh, they're going to stay? They're staying in Cleveland. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, maybe no. I, I haven't. That was old uh, news. That was, I was that was perhaps old news, yes. Okay. yes. But those kinds of things, I mean, get the, the, the private sector to also participate in creating a regional vision, right? So, but let me, let me um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go a different place than where Matt went. Um, so they may think they're doing it, and they may think they're doing a good job. I guess the question is, do you think they're doing it? And do you think they're doing a good job? And how do you have that conversation? Like, like where, when, when does the check-in happen? Uh, so one of the things we've started doing at our bank is when we start an initiative, part of the, the upfront planning is that after a certain amount of time, we're gonna do a retrospective. We're gonna do a retro and say, how, how did it go? What worked well? What didn't work well? And so how do we redirect or pivot given sort of that experience and that feedback? And, and so for me, I, I don't know a lot about what the partnership has done. Um, I'm, they've, I'm sure they've done some things. And so the question is, once they got those things done, sort of where, where is the next thing to go? Who's involved in those conversations? And, and how do you then come to, to a, a, um, 
a consensus, a, a regional consensus about what the next priority should be. So uh, like these things, and this is one of the things that we're, this is the our agility journey in our bank, which is you know, every project has a life. Every, every effort has a life and it, it has ebbs and flows and it evolves and you've got to continue to be, check in with it periodically through that life cycle to make sure that you're just not blindly following a direction because that's what we decided to do three years ago. If the world has changed or if we saw that some parts of it didn't work, we should change. We should adapt and adjust. Uh, and those, those mechanisms are also not ones that you see a lot of um, in any of these sorts of initiatives, but they can be really important. Uh, frankly, we didn't see that a lot in our bank. And uh, since we've gone that route, it's opened up conversations. We're having conversations we never had before. We, we're speaking to tensions that everybody knew were out there, but nobody actually said out loud. Uh, and it's allowing us to have a different, um, a different trajectory and a different energy around things. So, so, so to me, I think this is a conversation to have uh, that could be really um, important and valuable. Well, now's the time, I mean, with respect to the Greater Cleveland Partnership, and there's a brand new leader there as well. So with, with new leadership comes opportunities for that kind of feedback and, and, and so forth. I want to remind our listening audience that uh, that was the voice of Dr. Raphael Bostic, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and board member at the Lincoln Institute. Mac McCarthy of the Lincoln Institute is with us as well. Do you have another question? Hello. Um, my question is about community development corporations. Um, you know, they're a part of this conversation of institutions that take that funding, distribute it. Um, and I know there's a lot of criticisms about what responsibilities they take from the government, how much influence they should have on the private sector. Um, I know university circles here, but they don't bite. Um, <laughs> I, but I want to know, like, wh what do you guys think about community development corporations? How do they fit into this equation? Because they're so opposite of that regional big picture influence, um, you know. All right, so, so I'll start. So one thing to, to understand about community development corporations is their own history, why they exist in the first place. And um, the community development corporation was created as a kind of a bridge for public and private capital into capital-starved neighborhoods. And so they were an institutional kind of arrangement, a, a new institution that, that, that was called to really fill a role that hadn't been filled because the banks weren't investing, because money wasn't flowing in that way. And you needed what? The capacity and the counterparty who could actually get the stuff done. And so we started with you know, three CDCs in the late 60s. We have thousands of them now. And, they're, and they've done yeoman's work at actually transforming the, the neighborhoods they work in, housing, jobs, education, even public safety, right? But the, the problem with uh, CDCs is that they've always been constructed as kind of a thousand points of light. And if you've met one CDC, you've met one CDC, right? Because they're, they're all a little bit different. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, whatever it was, 10 or 15 years ago when I was at the Ford Foundation, we created this thing called Metropolitan Opportunity. And we decided we were going to go and focus at a, in regions of the country to kind of work together with folks. Um, to um, do things like in Denver, transform the region by getting housing and, and transportation and education kind of coordinated locally. So we invited the, we, 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 uh, we work with local philanthropy, we got these big tables together, we brought all the CDCs together, and we sat there in these big meetings where we were trying to figure out if we're going to work in these places, and we look at the CDCs all looking at each other like they're competition, not like they're partners. And we said, and we said to them, we said, look, 
you guys got to get over it. You got to, you cannot just think about, you know, Huff, the neighborhood Huff, right? You have to think about Huff within the context of Cleveland, within the context of northern, northeastern Ohio. And you got to stop thinking about just what you're going to do for that one area. And you also got to stop thinking about doing everything for that one area, right? You can't just do housing and economic development and public safety and all that. And you have to think about how you work together now as a coalition of CDCs in a region. And some regions have been better than others at actually figuring out a way to get a CDC table together and forging a collective vision about how you work together to address the region's challenge, right? Um, CDCs are, are, are great, but they have to kind of evolve into kind of the next round. And, and in some places, the way they've done it is by doing what the, the business sector did, creating a table where they really, and they honestly go and, and engage each other in trying to find ways to contribute to a solution to a regional problem, not just the one little neighborhood. And it's hard to do, but you can't just replicate what we've done you know, all along, which is to fragment and fragment, because when you have fragmented government, you have fragmented you know, private sector, public sector, then you end up with all these kind of people working in isolation for their own good and coming up with something that's not good for the, the body politic, right? So I, I want to go, I thought you were going to go a different place on that. All right, well, um, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I like where you went, so, so that was good. Okay, um, but but the, the other thing I, I think about with CDCs, community development corporations, is um, spending time actually figuring out which ones are actually working and then trying to get those to scale. Uh, and being, and, and funders in particular, having the courage to say, you know, the, the CDCX, you know, love your effort, love your passion. This model just doesn't seem to be producing the results that are gonna change these communities. So we have to go a different way. That doesn't happen very often. No. And it's one of the reasons why you do see such a tremendous proliferation of them uh, and the persistence of them even when change isn't happening. And so, I, so, I, so you know, one of the things I think we all need to be thinking about is, um, I, I wanna say it that way. I wanna say the goal of a CDC is to change people's lives and to change communities' trajectories. That's what they're trying to do. And if they're not accomplishing that, then we should try something else to, to try to do that. And that's gotta be, a, a, you know, sometimes these are, hard, these are hard conversations sometimes because no one does this to not work, right? They all do it, they, they have passion, they have tremendous uh, belief in the model and the, the strategy that they're taking. But, you know, startups, small businesses don't work a lot of times as well either. Uh, and so we just have to acknowledge that there are going to be times when it just didn't work. And those resources, they're scarce resources, as you know. Oh, yeah. um, we need to make sure they are continually being funneled to the things that are having the most impact. Thank you. We have another question. Going back to community capacity and political corruption, what recommendations do you have for making sure that the voices of people of color are heard that, are heard that do not sit in seats of power and privilege? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I probably went, so he has more patience than I do on this, so I should, I should let him go. Um, um, this is a really important question. I, I, met, I spoke to this a little bit earlier in that uh, I do, one of the concerns that I have in, in, a, in this space is that the people 
who often have the resources and the power think they know what the solution is when the people who live in the community actually think it's a different problem, right? And that something else needs to happen. And they never, that their view never informs how resources are deployed or spent. Uh, and that, um, that one creates frustration uh, for the people in the community. Like when I was teaching my, my class for affordable housing, I would tell my students who all had great hearts, they want to do the right thing, when you go in these neighborhoods, they're not gonna see you as riding in a white horse. They're gonna see you as the next person telling us that you know what we need, as opposed to asking us what, asking us what we need. And that's not a perspective that a lot of people have, but I think it's really an important one that we take. So how, how do we change this? I think, um, one, I think for the students, like this needs to be something that you internalize. That anyone who's gonna work in this space needs to say, like, if I'm going to think about resources going into a particular neighborhood or community, the first thing I need to do is make sure I know what they think the issues are so that their items are on the list. Now, we may not be able to do their items today, but they should at least be on the list, and that's going to be an important thing. You know, a second thing, I, I mean, I talked about capacity in communities as well, and, and, and trying to create environments where uh, the residents of our communities actually have space to dream and to aspire and to talk about those aspirations. You know, my first answer, I talked about precariousness. Mm -hmm. And when people feel like they're uh, in a precarious situation, they don't take time to think long-term anything. Right? They're thinking, can I, am I gonna have a roof over my head tomorrow? Am I gonna have enough food for my kids? Um, uh, how am I gonna make sure that my child gets home safe? Right. Th those are like two-hour thought pro windows, right? And what we're talking about here are five-year thought windows, 10-year thought windows, and it's a different w mode of thinking, and it need people need to be in a different space to think that way. So I think you gotta deal with the precariousness inherently if you're gonna get people to, to be able to be in that space, but then we need to actually take, take them seriously. Like, and say, look, you, you have every, as much of a right to have a vision and a dream for the city as I do, and so I'm going to do things to make that happen. And I think this is, a, this is one of those, this is a blocking and tackling thing, and it's, it's a city prioritizing all of its residents. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's regrettable it doesn't happen everywhere, but um, you know, with conversations like this, I think it will happen in more places, and that's good. I just add one footnote to that. And so, um, so back in the day, I worked with an organization. I don't know if they're around anymore called Urban Habitat. And one of the things that Urban Habitat did was really articulate a very sharp long-term vision for um, empowering the community. And they did it in an odd way. They created kind of um, uh, an academy to train people to be on boards and commissions. And if you want to get your community voice heard, you've got to get into a position to make it heard. And so one of the things that, that they identified was the um, idea that lots of low-income folks, lots of uh, people of color, didn't even think of getting into or onto boards and commissions as an avenue towards being able to articulate uh, their voice. And in order to do that, they needed just some basic training and Robert's Rules of Order, those kinds of things. And, and so um, at, at Ford, we invested in kind of that little academy to get people ready. And then the community organizers went out and found the right kind of candidates and cultivated them to take those positions. Because otherwise, 
you get a lot of people who think they have the answers to all the questions. They're wealthy. They have the time. They can go sit on these boards and commissions and you know make all sorts of mischief for people like me, right? <laughs> like the historic commission, right? So the uh, so the. I think that, that it's, that's an invisible area that actually starts to change the way a place works. And there's hundreds of boards and commissions with all oh, these people on them, right? Oh my lord, so, are so there, so yes. Can I just jump on this? You, very quickly, because we're said, almost out of time. Yeah, you said one thing that I want to push back on, which is we're going to identify the right kind of people to do this. I actually think that we don't know all the right kinds of people. And there are people who have visions and skills that are not allowed to reveal because of the chaos that is around in their lives. And so, you know, we see this a lot in, in places I go, where if you can create some structure for people and there's non-chaotic, all of a sudden the C minus student is a straight A student. And, and so I, 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 I try to go through life not knowing where the next great idea is coming from and being open to it coming from anywhere. And, um, I have to remind myself that sometimes, but but it's an important it's an important approach to sort of the, the human enterprise. That there are smart people everywhere, there are insightful people everywhere, and we don't hear from all of those insights, and that makes all of us worse off. And so, if we can get those voices heard and understood, uh, we can all be much better. Very practical advice from Dr. Raphael Bostic of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, also the board of the Lincoln Institute, and Mac McCarthy of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. I want to thank you both. Please join me in thanking them for their time today. This is the final forum marking the 75th anniversary of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Congratulations to all of you. Um, it was a pleasure being a part of this partnership over the last year, and we, we are deeply grateful for, your, for the partnership. We welcome guests today at tables hosted by the Maxine Goodman Levin College of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State University, Mansur Gavin and University Circle. Delighted to have you with us today. I want to invite everybody to join us for our forum next Friday. It's a, another in our Local Heroes uh, series. We'll be featuring Tim Tramble, President and CEO of the St. Luke's Foundation. And I'm sure it will dovetail pretty neatly with what we've been discussing today. A reminder, too, that we begin requiring proof of vaccination or a recent negative COVID test on that day on October 1st. Monday, October 11th, tune in at 7.30 p.m., either online or on WVIZ or on WCPN for our Cleveland mayoral debate with candidates Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly. That's 7.30 p.m. on Monday the 11th. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.